ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Introducing Capital Group's new actively managed ETFs, a new suite of ETFs brought to you by a company with a proven track record of long-term results, a 90-year history of navigating ups and downs, and everything behind it. Give your portfolio active management at the core. Explore what's behind our new active ETFs at capitalgroup.com ETFs. American Funds Distributors, Inc., member FINRA. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me this week will be Laura Krigger, Editor-in-Chief at Betify, and this will be fun. I have a nice grab bag of ETF topics for us to get into, though we are going to focus the bulk of our time on these uh, single-stock ETFs that just launched. Now, uh, you may recall Dave Nottig and I did bat these around a little bit on last week's podcast. However, Laura and I are going to go into much more depth on these including why the SEC let these things come to market. I, I mean, given all of the negative public statements out of the SEC over the past week, to me, it's a bit surprising they allow these to launch. But Laura is the uh, regulatory guru, so we'll find out from her what the SEC might be thinking here. And then we'll take a look at uh, how the first single stock ETFs are doing thus far and what might come next in terms of product development. I think the floodgates are about to open here. It's going to be a, a sight to behold, in my opinion. Now, Laura and I will also briefly touch on currency-hedged ETFs, which many of you will remember. These were uh, all the rage back in, like, 2015, and then they sort of fell off the map. But with the recent strength of the dollar, I think these could be primed for a big comeback. So we'll talk, uh, talk about those. And then I also want to cover alternative ETFs, which are getting a lot more looks this year. That'll set me up perfectly for my next guest, Phil Huber, CIO at Savant Wealth Management and author of The Allocator's Edge. And that book, it's really a complete guide to alternative assets and properly diversifying a portfolio moving forward, which that's a topic. Again, that's front and center right now with stocks and bonds both down sharply. You, you have a lot more investors looking for other options in a portfolio so Phil and I will have a full conversation around alternatives. Uh, you'll get to hear how he views alts in a portfolio, uh, the pros, the cons. We'll talk alt ETFs, uh, crypto, whatever else we might venture into. And Phil's firm manages some $14 billion, and they do use alts in their portfolio. So I'm really looking forward to that chat. And then to close this week, another interesting guest, I'll be joined by Tim Johnston, partner at Blue Horizon Capital, and a member of the Index Investment Committee for the Blue Horizon New Energy Economy 100 ETF, ticker BNE. And I was looking at uh, Tim's background. He's also co-founder and executive chairman of Lysicle, which is a, a global leader in, in lithium-ion battery recycling. He's co-founder and director of Metal, which focuses on lithium metal technologies for batteries. The bottom line is he's actively involved in the uh, quote-unquote new energy economy. So we'll get into exactly uh, what that is. I'm also very interested in hearing Tim's views on how the Russia-Ukraine war is impacting the energy space. I, I want to talk uh, nuclear energy. This should be a great conversation with a uh, true expert in his field. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter 
at Nate Geraci, or you can go to etfprime.com. Let's chat with Vetify's Laura Krigger. Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. There's a couple of different ways to slice and dice these various ETFs. They can hold what are called total return swaps. Expect the unexpected. Laura, I feel like it's uh, been a little while. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I've got to tell you, it seems like uh, you've been just a tad bit busy on your end. I mean, I'm not kidding. (laughs) I'm floored by the amount of content Vetify is now kicking out. I I don't know how you guys are doing it. It uh, it definitely keeps us on our toes. We're upwards of 40 or 50 pieces of content a day. It's it's fun. Yeah, it's It's a lot of fun. It's amazing. All right. So the single stock ETFs, we saw the first eight products launch last week from uh, Axis Investments that included a Tesla bear ETF, an inverse Tesla ETF, ticker TSLQ. There were uh, two times leverage and inverse Nike and Pfizer ETFs, and then uh, lesser leverage versions of PayPal and NVIDIA. What were your initial thoughts on uh, seeing these approved? <laughs> well, yes, right. So, so this approval on first glance is kind of bonkers, but Let's put things into perspective here, right? Because the truly bonkers thing is that it's not as bonkers as it could have been. So products like these have been trading for quite some time in Europe. Uh, There's a 3X Tesla ETP that I'm aware of. I I think it's one of, if not the most actively traded fund in Europe. There's also a 5X leveraged product on the queues and so on. So uh, single stock ETPs have existed in a much smaller market by volume and assets than the U.S., and they haven't broken that market yet. So I'm not convinced they're going to make a huge splash in our ocean, so to speak. Um, there's one or two, like you mentioned, TSLQ, uh, that have seen some decent volume, but the rest have been fairly quiet. So um, I also uh, think we should probably keep perspective on the magnitude of the leverage that we're talking here. So uh, we're not looking at 3x Tesla ETPs. Uh, that um, bullish NVIDIA and ETP that got approved, that's only uh, 1.25 times the the inverse uh, daily performance of NVIDIA. The bear fund is just straight inverse exposure with no levered element on top of it. I mean, there are some 2X ones, but Axis, uh, the Axis Investments, the in, uh, issuer behind these funds, asked the SEC for 2X and inverse 2X on all the products, but the SEC didn't go for it. They only allowed these um, reduced versions. So, what this tells me is that the uh, SEC is factoring in the volatility of the underlying stock into its decision-making process. Tesla is more volatile than Nike, right? So it's allowed a, a smaller leverage factor. But look, if you ask me, is there going to be appetite for these products? Yes, I think that's proven out. But that demand, that appetite is going to be probably limited to a very small subset of what comes out. And it, that subset is going to include rock star, headline moving stocks, the Teslas, and so on. Um, take a look at, for example, uh, SARC and TARC. Uh, those are the leveraged ETFs on ARKK. And they are just doing incredible volume on a daily basis. TARC's doing like $40 million daily. I think SARC is up to $200 million or something. But that's happening because of the the popularity and the volatility of the underlying security, ARKK, right? So when you have a volatile security, then inverse and leveraged exposure is going to make meaningful and attractive trends for investors. But could you do like an inverse version of, I don't know, American Century Fund and have it do that kind of daily volume? Eh, I don't know. It's kind of not the point of an American Century Fund, right? So I think there's probably some possibility of investors using these as trading tools, as a way to I don't know, express a view on earnings or something or to play market shocks or so on. Um, I could also see them being conceivably used as a tax loss harvesting tool, right? You could you know, move from one security into these securities or something. But I, 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 to be honest, I don't anticipate the vast majority of them ever becoming anything more than just a small niche play. And I certainly don't see them as market, potentially market-breaking investments, no more than any other leveraged or inverse ETF is. Okay, so there are several things that you just touched on there that I want to try to dive a little uh, deeper on, if, if, if we may. 
and mm-hmm. you talked about the decision-making process with the SEC and, and the uh, the amount of leverage on some of these ETFs. Uh, l- l- let me try to set this up. So um, Dave and I discussed this a little bit last week, but Laura, from my standpoint, um, it, it's a little amazing the SEC let these products come to market. I mean, you, you look at some of the comments. So SEC <clears throat> Commissioner Crenshaw I would say basically ripped these products to shreds last week in a statement <laughs> she put out. She said financial advisors would likely be breaching their fiduciary obligation by using these. Uh, there was also a mm-hmm. statement from Lori Schock with the SEC's Office of Investor Education and Advocacy. She talked about the uh, unique risk factors associated with these products. Even uh, SEC Chair Gary Gensler, uh, I saw the quote in Bloomberg, he said these products present particular risk. And so I'm reading all of this, and I'm wondering, well, why did the SEC approve these then? Now, I, I'm not the regulatory expert, so my question to you is, uh, was there simply no choice here by the SEC? Like, did issuers just run these things through the ETF rule, and, and they were allowed to come to market, or is there more here? I feel like if the SEC had those types of concerns, if they want to, at the end of the day, they can stop whatever from coming to market. So there is and there isn't. Uh, I know that's a very unsatisfying (laughs) uh, answer, but there was and there wasn't a way for the SEC to uh, stop these these, um, products from coming to market. So um, Crenshaw did say in her statement that these funds came to market under the ETF rule. And that's absolutely true, right? There's, to that extent, they couldn't stop it. Um, so so what does that mean precisely? What what did the ETF rule do that allowed these, these products to come to market? So um, every exchange decides what securities can be listed on their exchange through what's called listing standards. That's like the rule book for listing security. And there are what's called generic listing standards that apply to every security that's going to list on the exchange. And then there are specific standards uh, that apply to special or edge cases like complex products. So prior to the ETF rule being passed, and that's 6011, um, ETFs were exceptions to the SEC's rules. They only existed because you had to go out and get a special exempt of relief. That meant they fell under the individual listing, that specific listing criteria at the exchanges. And so the exchanges would have to file a rule change with the SEC in order to, to be able to list them. So under that old regime, single stock ETF comes to an exchange, the SEC could have said no to that rule change and the funds wouldn't have been able to list. They wouldn't have been able to meet the criteria. But then 6C11 passes and the ETF rule sets a generic listing standard, applies for every ETF that meets its criteria, and that automatically approves them to be listed. It just takes them out of the SEC's pipeline. Even if other forms of that exposure wouldn't have made it past the generic listing in like a different vehicle or whatever, uh, or if the ETFs themselves wouldn't have been approved in the original relief area. So to that extent, the SEC didn't have a choice. They kind of had to, the floodgates are open, right? So things are going to go through. Um, Yeah, I mean, there's some things they could have done, right? So they did pull a a little on the levers, right? Because Access had applied, like I said, for greater leverage than they ended up getting. And uh, reducing the leverage isn't the same thing as stopping products from coming to market. But, uh, you know, it is a little bit of a a twist. And look, the SEC knew these products were coming for some time. They did have options. Uh, Crenshaw explicitly said in her statement that the SEC, quote, failed to make use of the tools it does have, such as rulemaking ability, meaning the commission could have just gone out and made a rule that would have prevented these funds from coming to market. Now, there's uh, there just wasn't enough interest in the commission to pursue that line. I have a suspicion as to why. Um, so we had seen Gensler, Crenshaw, and Allison Heron-Lee, who was a former commissioner, all put out statements over the past year saying that they supported rulemaking for complex products. They wanted to see uh, investor protections around leveraged and inverse products and so on. That would have been a majority on the commission. Presumably, they could have done something. They could have put out a rule. But Lee actually left the SEC in April. Her replacement didn't take office until just yesterday, meaning there was a gap on the commission. And that majority on the commission in favor of rulemaking was no longer in place. So Gensler may not have just 
he may not have had the votes in that window of time when the this particular proposal was before them. It's so interesting. I mean, again, I just can't recall seeing really any product come to market with that much uh, sort of dissent from the SEC. Uh, the comments yeah. last week just really caught my attention. I mean, to have these statements put out publicly that were uh, pretty blunt on the types of risks that these products pose. Now, you know, all that said, look, I, I'm the I'm the guy that's been uh, beating the table on uh, uh, that, that we should have a spot Bitcoin ETF approved. So <laughs> I, I'm not going to be contradictory here. At the end of the day, I think investors have a responsibility to do their homework and understand whatever they're investing in. So if the SEC wants to allow these products to be available in the market, I'm fine with it. You, you know, my issue always comes down to consistency here. And yeah, it, and. Don't forget, we had the the FINRA proposal too a few uh, short months ago that would have done some of the you know thrown up roadblocks for in retail investors trying to access these products, these leverage inverse products. It is possible the SEC was kind of counting on FINRA to put the ban hammer uh, down. There were some references made to that effort in some of the public statements the SEC made. Um, so it, it may have just uh, gotten the wires crossed there. Who knows? So in terms of demand and what we might see from the market moving forward, I think you're right in that some of these products are going to find a real audience. I think we're already seeing that with the inverse Tesla ETF. Some of the other products, especially around stocks that maybe aren't quite as volatile or don't have the cachet, uh, the, the company cachet, they're probably not going to do as well. But Bloomberg had a, a piece over the weekend where they uh, noted that there are another 85 single stock ETFs in the hopper with the SEC. And you start looking at this. I mean, I look at some of the filings last week. There are now single stock covered call ETFs. Uh, Of course, we have leverage and inverse. I mean, I could, I don't want to be extremist here, but I could see a scenario where we have like a thousand of these things launched or 2000. I mean, we could see ETFs go from 3000 to 4000 in the span of the year, 3000 to 5000, because you Think about how many individual stocks are out there and then the different strategies you can put around th- those stocks. Um, I-, I guess I'm just curious. I mean, what do you what do you foresee happening here? I, and again, I agree that demand's going to be pretty confined to certain products, but that's not going to stop ETF issuers from trying to launch them. I, I absolutely agree. We are it is very conceivable. We could see 3000, 5000 products launching and then we'll see 3000 or 5000 products closing. Right. <laughs> like if you're if you're not gathering assets, it's not um, like running an ETF isn't a charity. It costs you money and and you have to have a certain amount of assets in it to break even and to make it uh, worth your while to have that ETF open. So, uh, you know, you don't want to just sit there with an ETF that's got two million in, in assets forever uh, just to keep it out there. It's, it doesn't make sense for an issuer to do that. So I think we are going to see a lot of products come to market, every single FANG stock, every meme stock. I think I saw a Tilray uh, was in one of the filings. And there's just going to be a torrent of these funds. And maybe one or two might stick around and be popular. And then all the rest are probably going to close because there's just not going to be, in my opinion, enough of a sustainable demand and sustainable volume, trading volume, to keep these funds healthy and alive. I want to move on here, but I mentioned this to uh, to Dave last week. One thing I do worry about with these is just investor confusion around the ticker symbols. Uh, because if sure. you look at the, the eight products that launched last week, those tickers are pretty similar to the underlying stock. You know, it's like one letter that's different on there. And I can just see a scenario where a retail investor goes into their E-Trade account and is intending to, say, buy Tesla Direct or NVIDIA and you know punches in the wrong ticker symbol and gets something else. Now, again, that's that's ultimately the responsibility of the investor. There's only so much you can do. But, you know, imagine a scenario where you have five or six or ten different iterations of uh, a NVIDIA uh, single stock ETF or Tesla. You could see some confusion in the marketplace. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. We do have some precedent for that. We have a, a number of um, iterations on BND or AGG, right? You, you go look up AGG, there's a, a huge number of AGG plus another letter uh, that pops up. Same with BND. So, um, yeah, I think investors are probably going to have to be careful. Uh, and that is a concern for sure. All right, let's briefly hit on two uh, unrelated topics. And the first one I have for you is currency hedged ETF. So you may have seen this. I tweeted out a chart last week that 
Uh, I, I say, look, this is not the most exciting chart, but I think it could be in running for chart of the year when it's all said and done. And it was a chart of the euro and showed it hitting parity with the U.S. dollar. And you look at the dollar strength this year, that's a real problem for international stocks, right? It's a drag uh, on returns for U.S. investors. And, of course, the underlying stocks aren't doing so hot themselves, but you add in the, the currency headwind, and it, you know that, that makes things really difficult. Do you think we could see a comeback from currency hedged ETFs? I mean, can they recapture that magic from back in, uh, what, what, 2014, 2015? <laughs> I actually think we're already seeing a comeback for currency hedged uh, products because, as you said, um, international stocks are not doing very well. Um, their performance is tanking and you know what you're, you should do when performance tanks is buy the dip, right? Buy in that way you can ride the rally. But the problem is you have that currency headwind, uh, facing you. So, uh, with the Euro hitting parity with the dollar, uh, we see the same thing in Japan. The yen's basically imploding over the last couple of months. Uh, a lot of resurgent interest, research interest on our site in currency hedging as an access point to allow people to stay invested in various international markets without taking that hit to your returns um, from a you know tanking local foreign currencies. So um, we've also seen specifically uh, small cap currency hedged small caps funds uh, kind of take off in engagement and research. I thought that was very interesting that um, but it speaks to that desire to get return and uh, from international markets because you know small caps tend to um, be riskier, but those risks tend to pay off, right? So uh, I, I just think that is an interesting angle that folks are looking more and more for currency hedged uh, small caps ETFs like DDLS in the Wisdom Tree Suite, DXJS in the wis- also in the Wisdom Tree Suite. Um, and it's just, you know, I'm keeping my eyes on the flows there. I think the story is very much in development. And, uh, you know, investors are seeing that these can be a very attractive way. Uh, currency hedged products can be a very attractive way to stay invested in a core allocation when the market itself is being challenged from a currency perspective. Yeah, I'll just always remember back in again, like 2013, 2014, 2015, <laughs> the flows into a DXJ, right? And HEDJ. I mean, they were unbelievable. Th- those products took in really billions were. of dollars and then they did sort of fade. Uh, so it- it'll be interesting to see if those can make a comeback. Okay, just a couple minutes left here. I want you to help set up my conversation with a Phil Huber on alternative investment. So I'll just ask you, I mean, th- this has been a big story in the year this, uh, thus far. You have stocks down, you know, worst start to a year since 1970. You have broad bonds down, worst start ever. And so I think you do have a lot of advisors and investors looking to alts. I mean, any alt ETF standing out to you this year? Any thoughts on the, the alt space overall? You know, it's so interesting you asked me this question because we've seen in some of our recent polling that alts as a strategy have been um, more attractive to advisors who are looking to provide income for their clients. Uh, you know, uh, up until this point, commodities and actually through this point, commodities remain the the most attractive uh, way to kind of step outside the sixty forty box. But alts are growing in interest level and and attractiveness. So. I think when we look back on 2022, or at least the first half of it anyway, we're going to see it as uh, the year of alts. And um, one thing that really stands out to me is uh, actually managed futures. So I feel like everybody's kind of waking up to these strategies, the managed futures strategy at the same time. You're seeing Crane Shares as KMLM. Uh, this was a sleepy, tiny little fund a few months ago with barely $10 million in assets. Now suddenly it's taken in $130 million to date. Um, you look at IMGP and Dynamic Beta's uh, managed future funds. That's a D, ticker DBMF. That's taken in 340 million year to date. So, I think if you're looking for that sort of blended futures exposure, an alternative hedge fund like exposure, but you don't want to do all the hard active work of picking out those positions, managing it yourself, and you know it's it's not easy to be invested in futures markets. Uh, you know, a managed futures ETF makes a lot of lot of sense. It's convenient. It's fast. It's cheaper. It's it's just easy. So we actually have a whole channel on our site dedicated to managed futures. If you encourage people to go look it out, um, there's a lot of great reg- educational resources out there for those who are looking to learn about this and any alternative strategy. Like there's so much good stuff out there now. 
Well, so, I, this is I, a space I'm, I'm just fascinated to watch moving forward because, I think, look, we all know the story. I'm going to talk about this a little bit with Phil, that alts really d- as a whole did not work over the past decade plus. And, yeah. I, you know, I remember in 2017, 2018, 2019, everybody's saying, I think I said it, hey, this will be the year for alternative investments. And it never really happened. But it does seem like we have a shifting market regime. We'll, we'll see if that you know stays intact longer term. But you could really see a scenario where the alt ETF category takes off. So I, I'm just interested to watch that space. But, Laura, we're going to have to leave it there. Great having you back on the podcast. Excellent stuff, as always. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure, as always. That was Laura Krigger, Editor-in-Chief at Vetify. At Vanguard, clients are more than investors, they're owners. That means we always seek to focus on client objectives, aligning our goals with investor goals, and staying disciplined. Vanguard fixed income investors own low-cost products that reflect these priorities, which can enhance outcomes. That's the value of ownership. Visit Vanguard.com to obtain a fund prospectus or, if available, a summary prospectus which contains investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and other information. Read and consider carefully before investing. All investing is subject to risk. Fund shareholders own the funds which own Vanguard. Investments in bond funds are subject to interest rate, credit, and inflation risk. Vanguard Marketing Corporation Distributor. I'm now joined by Phil Huber, Chief Investment Officer at Savant Wealth Management, an approximately $14 billion wealth management firm. Phil is also author of The Allocator's Edge, A Modern Guide to Alternative Investments and the Future of Diversification. That came out towards the end of last year. And I'll also note Phil blogs at bipsandpieces.com. That's bpsandpieces.com, which I highly recommend checking out. And Phil is now on the line with me from Chicago. Phil, great having you back on the podcast. Great to be here, Nate. And look at the welcome music with Weezer. How about that? I think I play Weezer like every other week. Just can't help myself. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't uh, attributable to me. Yeah, no. All right. So, so look, I've got to tell you, uh, I know you won't claim to have a crystal ball, but the timing of the release of your book was uh, impressive. So I'm showing this was released in November of last year, and you think about what's gone on in the markets this year, I mean, you were all over it because the backdrop of the book is that with uh, equity valuations on the higher end and interest rates at historic lows, investors might want to consider some other uh, asset classes and strategies. And and you look this year, that that's certainly played out thus far. So I, I guess to start, what was the background on uh, on writing this book? Why did you pursue this? Sure. I guess in terms of the timing, what's what's he saying? Uh, better lucky than good. Um, so, <laughs> what's interesting though is I, it was actually supposed to originally come out probably a year earlier, and that was more on me. And that you know between COVID and and life, you know, and and different obligations being in the way, I just had to keep kicking the can down the road and actually getting the book done. So I ended up it ended up coming out a year beyond initially what was intended. So a part of me. Thinks it was a good thing in hindsight because the, the timing worked out well. I think in the sense that there's naturally more interest and demand around alternatives. But on the flip side, had it come out a year earlier, perhaps there would have been, you know, for advisors or, or professionals who read it, you know, maybe a little bit more time to prepare portfolios ahead of what, what has been a really challenging year to uh, uh, to allocate to traditional uh, asset classes. So um, to your question, like, what, why write this book? Why, why write a book? I, I think. Why write a book was just, you know, for me, just having been blogging for a number of years, it was always sort of a bucket list item and a, a great opportunity. Came along to work with Harriman House as, as a publisher and um, to give me that platform to, to do that. But in terms of the topic itself, you know, really that, that was born out of just my, my experience uh, in, in the role of CIO for a wealth management firm. You know, my 
clients or really all the clients of the firm, but both specifically, you know, our advisors are kind of my clients and that I'm a, a resource to all of them. And so just from, you know, day-to-day conversations and gathering feedback, like what are they struggling with in meetings as it relates to discussions around the portfolio, you know, we had been allocating to a number of alternative asset classes for, for a number of years. And I would say it was a, a material allocation of the portfolio, but still relatively modest, you know, call it 15 to 20 percent of an average you know, portfolio, but it was accounting for the vast majority of client questions, maybe frustration, uh, misunderstanding, et cetera. You know, some of it I think has to do with the, the backdrop at the time of just a continually rising equity bear market where everything that you, every dollar you don't have in stock seems like it's a, a drag on the, on the portfolio. But I think also, too, it was a recognition that, you know, at the end of the day, we're, you know, the advisors are the ones that are, are in the trenches, in the field, translating these, you know, inherently somewhat more complex investments to our end clients. Um, and, and while while certainly we, we were, you know, aware that there's an education gap for the individual investor just because they're not accustomed to investing in these sorts of things that fall under the alternatives umbrella, I think even at the professional advisor level and the advisor level, there, there's still work to be done to try to get a better understanding as to the, the kind of why, how, and what behind uh, investing in alternatives. So that was really the inspiration for the book. And by the way, I should note that the foreword to your book was written by none other than Cliff Asnes. Uh, how did that come about? Uh, they they say shoot your shot, and uh, Cliff's <laughs> always been you know one of my uh, you know uh, heroes in the investment world. I've always had such a great deal of admiration for the work that he and, and his colleagues at AQR have done, in, in particularly in kind of educating uh, you know folks like myself on the use of alternatives in portfolios, and so. I, I kind of think back earlier in my career, a lot of the initial sort of aha moments about expanding beyond stocks and bonds and what that means for portfolio construction really came from learning, you know, through through some of their work. And so I, I couldn't think of anyone better to write the forward if he was willing to do it. And fortunately, he was willing to do it and did, and did a great job. And so I'm, I'm very indebted to, to Cliff for uh, doing that for me. All right. So you may have caught the tail end of my uh, segment with Betify's Laura Krigger, but I was talking about how we did just have the worst start to a year for the S&P 500 since 1970, the worst start to a year ever for broad bonds. Uh, you know, obviously, there's a lot going on in the markets, right, between the, the Fed and inflation, Russia, Ukraine. We're coming off a once in a generation or more pandemic. So there's a lot of what I would call uh, sort of shorter term factors that play in the markets right now. But in reading your book, and, and we'll, we'll get into this in more detail, I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush, but I, I think my sense is that you do view alts as something that belongs as part of a longer-term allocation. I'd love to have you just talk a little bit more about that. I mean, is it as simple as you believe the markets moving forward are going to look different than what we've experienced the past decade plus, or is there more to it than that? I think, to me, that the reasoning for a strategic allocation to alternatives and I'll just caveat that with alternatives is a very broad word and it includes a lot of different categories that have very little to do with one another. So it's it's hard to use the word alternatives very broadly, but we'll stick with it for the purposes of this conversation. But I would say the the, the, the rationale is kind of twofold. One is more sort of uh, market environment driven in the sense that um, the whole first chapter of the book is called Hindsight is 60-40 in that it was really trying to identify what are the, the potential headwinds uh, facing 60-40 type portfolios or traditional stock bond portfolios in the years ahead, and, and we're we're kind of living through it now. That wasn't because I had any sort of crystal ball that that was going to happen right when the book came out. It was just sort of a recognition that hey, the the environment, particularly for the 40, the bond piece, is a lot different today than it was, you know, 20 to 30 years ago. And, and if you look at all the sort of boxes that bonds checked in being a complement to stocks in a diversified portfolio, for a while they checked all those. It was you know these you know decent yields, you know, high total returns, or, or I would say decent total returns, you know, diversification kind of when you wanted it, and also just a relatively benign environment for inflation, which we know can wreak havoc on bonds. And so that hadn't risen to the surface, you know, up until recently in, in quite some time. And so it was kind of just identifying all these factors that, I, you know, I, I was not the first person to make note of these, but it was more kind of a like boy who cried wolf thing where I think people have been calling for like the death of 60-40 for years. And it just kept kept chugging along, and then even the up and you know through 2020, call it the the 10 year return for like a 60 40 was you know above average relative to history, not just in absolute terms, but in risk adjusted terms. And so it was kind of this, hey, a for 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 all of us who are are kind of prone to look back 
and rely more on the recent past and extrapolate into the future, you know, the 60-40 portfolio became a bit of like a security blanket for allocators in that it was kind of the safe bet. It's like, hey, why mess with a good thing? It's working. But when you just look further ahead, like the math is kind of the math on the bond side. Um, so we know the total returns are going to be much lower than they have been in the past. And I think what people probably didn't give as much thought to was this the idea that bonds are going to diversify stocks in a down market, and that's not always the case. The correlations between stocks and bonds are not necessarily stable over time, and they're not always that, that sort of negative um, impact where you see price appreciation in bonds when stocks are declining. And so really it was just saying, hey, look, there, there can and will be environments where bonds can't do the heavy lifting that they always have as a sole diversifier to equity risk. The flip side, I mentioned there's kind of two parts to the argument for alternatives. So there's the market environment side. There's also just the kind of evolution of, of um, you know, asset class availability in, it, in the sense that as allocators, as financial advisors, we just have a, a larger opportunity set and, and a greater toolkit to build portfolios with. And so, you know, it's kind of just a recognition that there's more things that we can use to, to maybe, you know, uh, fill in where, where bonds are falling short to, to diversify a portfolio. And that, yes, it will take some education and, and, and there's a bit of a learning curve, but I think once you get over that, I think we, we, we've got the tools to give portfolios uh, better odds of uh, success than relying on traditional uh, constructs. And I think a good parallel would be the evolution of indexing. We think about the early days of indexing. It was index mutual funds and eventually, you know, the ETF came along and, and with its, you know, different sort of structural improvement, sort of uh, kind of the next generation. And then, of course, the, the big, you know, buzzword du jour today is direct indexing or custom indexing by taking all the same attributes of indexing at the fund level and trying to utilize uh, individual securities to, you know, get more customization, better tax management. So if we think about asset allocation, I think it'll follow a similar sort of evolution where, okay, at the end of the day, clients do want meaningful returns, but they also want the ability to diversify and manage risk. Um, and we kind of had two levers for that for a while. There have been attempts at improving upon that, things like risk parity, where you're kind of taking the same um, ingredients but using a different recipe to provide greater risk balance. And then you've got things on, on the institutional side, like the endowment model, that have a greater reliance on, on uncorrelated return streams and illiquid investments. And so in terms of what the future portfolio looks like, um, you know, it's hard. it doesn't really have a name yet, but I think it will kind of take, take cues from both risk parity, from you know, dynamic asset allocation from from the endowment model and try and come up with something that works for individual investors as opposed to institutions by continuing to embrace other sources of return uh, in a portfolio. Okay, so there are several things I honed in on there. Uh, fantastic <laughs> description. No, that winded answer. I know. No, that that was wonderful. Um, let, let me come back to the potential shortcoming uh, shortcomings of bonds in, in the sixty forty portfolio. So I saw some tweets a couple of weeks ago from. Morningstar's Christine Benz and, and Jeffrey Patak. I, I sent these over to you. And for listeners, basically, uh, Christine and Jeff were discussing alternative funds. And Christine said that, uh, look, in a challenging market environment, uh, all manner of complicated, often expensive gobbledygook, that, that, that's her uh, term, becomes an easier sell. Which, Phil, we can talk about that. I, I agree with that. And then Jeff chimed in with the uh, performance of alternative funds over the past 15 years. And it was pretty ugly, like hardly any alt funds beat a 60-40 portfolio. So, Phil, I'm just curious, I mean, what did you think about that? Does it come down to, again, we're going to have a different market environment moving forward? And so looking back over the past 15 years maybe isn't a fair uh, comparison. What were your thoughts on those tweets? Yeah, I, I think it was a good thread. And, and first and foremost, I'll say I have the utmost respect and, and admiration for both Christine and Jeff. I think they do phenomenal work, and I uh, really enjoy them both personally. But um, and, and I actually don't disagree with what they said, which might be a little bit surprising in the sense that I think Christine hit the nail on the head, is that this is always the case following a, a big bear market or a big downturn, is that people are starting to look for diversification after they needed it. Um, and that always presents return chasing challenges. So that I think that's going to always exist, and not even just in the alternatives, but all asset classes. We just tend we're, we're just kind of return chasing, you know, uh, 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 beings uh, to a degree. I think Jeff's point about like the survival rate and the success rate of liquid alternatives funds. A couple of points there. Like obviously the data is the data with what he was showing. I would say just because something has alternative in the label, and there's a number of different sub- subcategories that they have at Morningstar in that kind of liquid alts universe. A lot of them have pretty substantial market beta. Um, so uh, to me, it's 
goes beyond just sort of looking at the label, and you really got to go under the hood. And, and certain categories for us don't, you know, pass the smell test that we don't include in the portfolio because we don't think that they're going to be diversifying uh, or, or truly uncorrelated. Uh, so I think, it, you know, again, relative maybe to, to more traditional asset classes, a much deeper degree of, of kind of getting into the, into the nuance and understanding and uh, deeper due diligence as to what you're getting into. Um, at the same time, alternatives are not a silver bullet. They do require uh, really a good understanding of when they might work and when they might not work and also ha- have a decently long time horizon to allow them to, to bear fruit. And, and, and I caught the tail end of your conversation with Lara um, talking about managed futures, and that's a perfect example where, you know, we've been allocating to that space for many, many years now. And, you know, to be honest, that's probably the one asset class we've had to probably defend the most. And, and, and then, you know, thankfully we've, we've gotten clients to really stick with it, you know, uh, but, but it's, it wasn't easy. And then, of course, it's, it's paying dividends this year is, is kind of the, really the standout performer in, in, in a year that almost everything else is down. And so, again, I, I think the, there's a, too much of a, a behavioral aspect of trying to kind of close the barn door after the horses get out when you have a challenging market environment. So, like, the time to get into managed futures, not to say it's necessarily too late today, but would have been like a year ago, not now after after we see the damage to 6040, after we see, okay, this category is doing really well. So, um, you know, I think, I think uh, you know, again, I, I think the initial attempt at liquid alts following the GFC was probably a, a, a failure just because it was, um, it got a lot of product in a very short period of time and a lot of things that probably shouldn't have ever been launched in the first place, a lot of funds that ultimately kind of met their maker. Um, and, and so I think probably some lessons learned along the way. Of, of, and you tend to see, you know, kind of a survival of the fittest, not as many firms launching, you know, quote-unquote, like, Me Too products where they just feel like they got to be in, in the alternatives world because that's where all the hot, you know, flows are going. And so I think what you have today is probably a, a higher-quality subset of offerings than maybe the kind of early-mid-2010s. Um, and I think probably some lessons learned from, from allocators on, on just trying not to time these things and understanding better how to set expectations for clients and kind of where to source them from in a portfolio and how to properly frame expectations for clients. And so I don't think we're all the way there yet, but again, that was a big reason for writing the book and trying to get down the path of getting there. Yeah, I think the investor behavior and psychology is a huge component here. I mean, the fact is, alts, and again, we're talking very broadly here to your point, there's a lot that fits under the alternative umbrella, but they can go long periods of time where they don't work. And and to what you were saying, I mean, we saw that following the global financial crisis, where for the most part, alts didn't work for over a decade. And so I do think it can be difficult for investors to stick with them. And then, you know, here recently, we're seeing some of these strategies start to work and you're seeing investors jump in. So I, I think, you know, the best portfolio is the one you can stick with. But if you're going to get the value out of alts over the long term, there is a, a, a big component of investor behavior uh, that, that's required there. Something else, Phil, that I'd love to get your take on. You know, I've always said um, that you, you look at the alt space. And especially when I talk about alternative ETFs, they're typically more complex, right? They're just not as straightforward to understand as traditional stocks and bonds. I'm curious, besides uh, telling people to read your book, which I highly recommend, um, how do you think advisors and investors can best approach getting their arms around this space? Because again, the the other factor here too, and and you, you alluded to this, is at least for advisors, they can't just add alts to a portfolio and hope they work out. They need to intelligently explain these strategies to clients, right? They they really need to understand what it is that they own and what they're dealing uh, dealing with. So, what tips would you offer to advisors on that? Well, like you said, besides reading the book, which I would certainly encourage, um, <laughs> I think it's really um, uh, finding you know people uh, with because again, there's so many different categories and alternatives, um, and so I think there's a lot of really knowledgeable experts out there in, in, in these ones. And so I think whether, whether it be something like Twitter or different email, you know, newsletters or what have you, just kind of, you know, find the right filters, the people that you think, you know, uh, are really kind of experts in these different areas and just try to learn from them, whether that be through, again, like, you know, mediums like Twitter or reading research papers or, or what have you, just really, really go deep. And, and you know, you don't, you don't have to go deep on every single subcategory, but like kind of figure out like what are the things that are probably most appealing either from a structural standpoint that, that your clients might be comfortable with, like what, what sorts of vehicles or, or what asset classes. And I think it ultimately boils down to, like, who are the clients that you serve? Um, what are their objectives? What are their kind of, kind of limitations as it relates to things like liquidity, et cetera? 
um, and, and then really trying to understand the nuance. So, you know, there's a lot of nuance at the structure level between mutual funds and ETFs and then other sort of unlisted fund structures like interval funds or tender offer funds or, you know, uh, non-traded REITs, et cetera. So a, a lot of things to understand there for, for folks that are really only accustomed to using mutual funds and ETFs. And then I think at the asset class level, it's like, what are, what, are, what are the objectives that you're trying to fulfill in a portfolio? Is it just generally broader diversification, like uncorrelated return streams? Is it sort of yield-based strategies that are you trying to fill an income void left behind by traditional fixed income? Or are you looking for things that have some degree of direct or indirect inflation sensitivity? Uh, or, or all the above, you know? And then, then that, 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 that kind of omits a... You know, I kind of think of those as like the core alternatives objectives. There's the other side of the spectrum, which is like enhanced returns above and beyond what you get from public market equities. Um, I, I tend to not think of those categories, like venture and private equity, as, as true alternatives. To me, that's just kind of a part of an equity allocation, just with liquidity and a higher risk profile and higher return target. Um, but again, again, the, the, the different categories are going to really be dependent on who the either investor is or who the advisor is and the types of clients they serve and the, tra- the types of challenges they're trying to solve. But I think there's a ton of, I think we just live in such a phenomenal um, environment right now for just amazing free resources on the internet. Uh, there's just so many great, uh, you know, blogs and podcasts and research um, providers out there that you don't have to pay thousands of dollars for this. There's a lot of it that's just readily available. And so, well, not not to point back to my book again, but even if you skip reading the book and look in the back, there's an appendix I called the research rabbit hole where I tried to identify for each uh, alternative category just a, a smattering of different podcasts and articles and papers and books. Uh, specific to each of those domains that would, again, because I can only go so deep at each level in the book, it was kind of like, hey, choose your own adventure. If you want to go deeper in any of the categories that I, um, you know, that I covered in the book, like here, here are some great uh, uh, resources to do that. Phil, just a couple of minutes uh, left here. You had mentioned earlier asset class availability, and obviously this is an ETF-focused podcast. I think about how ETFs have helped open up access to different uh, alternative strategies. Do you have any specific thoughts on alternative ETFs? Are you a fan, uh, not a fan? A- any uh, any high-level thoughts here? I would say, uh, you know, full disclosure, with, within our portfolios today, none of the alternatives we use are, are in ETF wrapper. It's either, uh, you know, mutual funds or uh, interval funds, things like that. I think there's a handful of, of decent quality uh, ETF options out there. Uh, but I, I don't think it's necessarily the, the right wrapper for uh, most categories. A, um, some alternatives are inherently more illiquid, which doesn't, you know, you, you've got, you can't really have a, a liquidity mismatch between the underlying investment and the wrapper. I think when you think of one of the main uh, benefits of ETFs being its tax efficiency, that doesn't necessarily uh, translate as well to, to strategies that use a lot of, you know, leverage or shorting or derivatives as opposed to individual securities. Um, as well, you don't get that same in-kind uh, redemption mechanism. And then it, lastly is, is capacity. There, there's just some strategies that have inherent capacity constraints, and there's really no way to, to uh, address that in an ETF where you can't, you know, hard or soft close a fund. And so I think there's a handful of, of asset classes that, it, you know, ETFs can work well for uh, and others that it can't work well for. Yeah, that last point is the one that stood out to me in reading the book that, you know, you talked about how investors need to be careful they're not getting a watered-down version of some alternative strategy that while you do have the liquidity and convenience of an ETF wrapper, you might be sacrificing in some uh, other areas. But um, all right, we have a minute left. I'm not, I'm not saving us a lot of time here. We could do a full podcast, you and I, on this topic. But I have to briefly ask you about crypto, which hasn't fared <laughs> so well this year. Uh, it hasn't served as that alternative source of return. It, it hasn't served as an inflation hedge or, or really much of anything and you do touch on this topic in your book, but where does crypto fit within alts, if at all? Yeah, I mean, I think just purely based on its sort of, you know, immaturity or nascency as an asset class, by that function alone, it's it's an alternative investment. Um, it just hasn't been around a while. There's still a lot we don't know about it. It's, it's hard to take a short time period that we know from the benefit of hindsight what the returns looked like, but you can't really necessarily make, make any broad assumptions on what, what the future is going to look like for crypto. So I think it's still highly speculative. If, you know, full disclosure, I invest personally a little bit in crypto. It's not a huge portion of my portfolio. Um, that being said, that the volatility is magnitudes higher than, than stocks, and so I think it can be sized very, very, very modestly. A little bit can go a long way. I also don't think there's a one-size-fits-all, you know, uh, 
allocation recommendation you can make for crypto. I think it, it can work well for some folks that understand the risks and uh, have have a high degree of conviction in the the potential and uh, and, and, and potential upside involved. And then other folks that is just again it's going to be behaviorally challenging to stick with. You got kind of stomach churning drawdowns. We're going through one right now and. Um, again, it just it kind of fits in that speculative bucket. So I would say, from a allocation standpoint, certainly probably carving it where you would otherwise otherwise have like growth equities or, or, or kind of venture type allocation. You, you don't want to think of crypto as kind of your more defensive alternative because it's certainly not, and we've seen increased correlations of stocks there. Um, so I, I think it, it, it's, it's an alternative, but again, it's kind of back to the idea that the word alternative doesn't really mean a ton because uh, crypto has a, certainly a different risk and return profile than something like farmland or, you know, managed futures or, or um, you know, reinsurance or something like that. So, um, you know, so not, not a, a damning uh, a look at the asset class. I think there's, there's some, you know, optimistic, you know, components to it, but uh, certainly not for everybody. Well, Phil, fantastic perspective this week. Congratulations on the book, which, by the way, where's the best place for listeners to get a copy of your book? Amazon? Yeah, Amazon, that's kind of the, the go-to these days for books. Uh, so that's, that's probably your best bet. But, yeah, uh, uh, it was great being on with you. would love to come back again sometime, and, uh, and, and thanks for uh, having me on. No, thank you. Always love uh, connecting. That was Phil Huber, CIO at Savant Wealth Management and author of The Allocator's Edge. This week's episode is brought to you by Goldman Sachs Asset Management ETFs. Smart investments made simple. Learn more at gsam.com slash ETFs. Alps Distributors, Inc. is the distributor of the Goldman Sachs ETF funds. My last guest this week, certainly not least, is Tim Johnston, partner at Blue Horizon Capital and a member of the Index Investment Committee for the Blue Horizon New Energy Economy 100 Index ETF, ticker symbol BNE. This obviously seeks to invest in the new energy economy, which we'll uh, get into exactly what that is. Uh, Tim is now on the line with me. Tim, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Nate. Thanks for having me. All right, so I saw that you joined Blue Horizon back in January of this year, and it's interesting. I was looking at your background. So you're co-founder and executive chairman of LiCycle, a global leader in, in lithium-ion battery recycling. You're also co-founder and director of LiMetal, which focuses on uh, lithium metal technologies for batteries. How did you end up getting involved with uh, Blue Horizon? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and. I was very fortunate. Uh, my background is I'm a mechanical engineer uh, and also a CFA charter holder. I've been working in and around the battery industry since uh, the late 2000s and uh, was really heavily involved in helping uh, groups develop lithium projects uh, all over the world, uh, starting out in the, in the mining industry and then later transitioning more into technology and, and advisory sort of work. But clearly, there was a, those broader needs uh, beyond primary production uh, of these materials, and, and that led me to to leave uh, my job as a, as an engineer uh, back in 2016 to start LiCycle and, and then later LiMetal. But I was very fortunate. I've always uh, you know found that this industry is a great industry to to work with extremely smart people. These are you know leaders in an area that. Uh, that very few people, you know, going back 10 years ago, even knew anything about. And uh, I was fortunate enough to to connect with uh, two former executives of Avamal, John Mitchell and Govind Aurora. And these gentlemen uh, were one of the founders of Blue Horizon Capital and really had a vision for uh, an investment product that was broad-based, that incorporated uh, a an ability to not only have broad exposure in what we call this new energy transformation, 
but also provide a level of uh, understanding that only comes from having lived and breathed and, and been in and around this industry. So if you look at the investment committee, you look at the people around the ETF, these are, these are all individuals, typically executives, that have led or, or been in senior positions in major lithium battery energy or related uh, companies supported by other great uh, financial experts, you know, people like Tony Fusco, uh, who, who leads the ETF. That expertise, we think, gives us an edge in terms of being able to uh, define what we see as this new energy economy. Okay, so I want to get to the ETF in just a moment, but let's start by having you explain this new energy transformation or this new energy economy. And I'll, I'll just hand this over to you uh, to lay out, but I thought it might be good to first have you explain what you view as the old energy economy and then what you see as the future here. Explain the new energy economy. Yeah, absolutely. And the concept between old energy and new energy is, is a little bit nascent because you know energy has been evolving uh, over the last century and beyond. Uh, in terms of you know, how we both store, generate, and, and use energy. Uh, but for our purposes, you know, we view uh, old energy as largely being uh, a carbon-based uh, economy. And so therefore, this new energy economy is this transition away from a carbon-based uh, energy sources uh, into non-carbon-based energies uh, and all the associated segments associated with it. So it's not just about energy generation, but you know, it includes things like energy generation, uh, distribution, how we use them, the materials that go into them. And I'll dig into a little bit more uh, about the ETF here shortly. But that really sort of sets the stage as to what we see as the new energy uh, economy. You know, from, a, from an investment... Oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say, from an investment standpoint, you know, we really see that it's not a, a bright line test. Uh, we see that the old energy and new energy uh, economies is really a transition. We see this transition taking place over the next 30 years uh, where we'll start to see, uh, you know, and by the way, I should point out, we're, we're by no means you know, anti the traditional energy uh, companies and, and the groups that have uh, built the economies around the world based on new energy because we see that they're going to be an important part of the mix during this transition over the next 30 years and really drive uh, a lot of the change that we're going to see uh, across our economy. Yeah, I was just thinking as you were describing this transition, you, you know, to me it feels like this entire topic of energy production and consumption, it's really moved to the forefront this year with the impact of the Russia-Ukraine war on uh, energy supplies. And I also uh, think just on the financial side, right, the money flowing into a government that is waging war, it's a war that I, I think most of the world disagrees with, is that helping to uh, sort of change the discussion around the new energy economy? Like, have you seen a shift here? Yeah, I mean, this this has been a transition that uh, well predates the uh, Ukraine-Russia uh, conflict. Uh, but for sure, what it's highlighting is that, you know, when you have captive sources of, of energy, as we do in the case, say, for Russia and their supply uh, into into Europe, it definitely creates a... Uh, an unbalance in terms of the ability for those economies to, to manage uh, their own internal uh, businesses and, and uh, ultimately drive productivity. So, so from our perspective, it's highlighted the need uh, and, and accelerated in, in some areas the transition towards this new energy economy. Uh, you know, from our perspective, you know, we see that there's somewhere between 100 and $150 trillion that needs to be invested into this new energy economy over the next 30 years. Uh, and what I think this is going to do is it gives the, uh, not just private industry, but also the government uh, organizations around the world, uh, the political will and desire to really invest heavily uh, in this sector in the coming years. Okay, so this is the perfect spot to talk about the ETF. Again, the Blue Horizon New Energy Economy 100 ETF, ticker symbol B&E. Uh, Tim, just walk us through what this holds, the basic instruction, anything else you think uh, that's noteworthy. Yeah, for sure. So we define this new energy economy as really being five key segments. Uh, and so coming back to, to where we were just talking about, you know, part of it is, is energy generation. That then flows on to energy distribution, uh, energy storage, performance materials, and e-mobility. 
So as you can see, it's really the transition from how that energy is first generated all the way through uh, to ultimately how we as consumers uh, consume the, the energy. Uh, it's a broad-based index. It's meant to be a benchmark index uh, against uh, this transition. So we're a 100-name uh, holding com- uh, ATS, uh, equally balanced. We do two rebalances uh, a year. And, and within the five segments that I just described, we have 22 sub-segments. Uh, the, the methodology of building the index is really structured around a uh, very disciplined, rule-based uh, approach. Uh, but with a, a final element of, and this is where we come into it as the industry experts, an understanding and appreciation of what we think uh, the right companies are relative to who we think are the leaders and innovators uh, within this space. Uh, and and that is, that's proven to work quite well. From an investor's perspective, uh, look, in terms of the, the investment case moving forward, I thought you did a, a really nice job of explaining the new energy economy earlier. I think it makes a lot of intuitive sense to people. But can you try to uh, sort of summarize the investment opportunity uh, as you see it moving forward? Like, like, why should investors have exposure to this space in their portfolio? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so uh, we, the reason why we see that uh, investors uh, should have exposure in, in this part of their, uh, their portfolio is that, of course, there's, there's a number of drivers that are driving what we think are, are true gains over the years to come. And it comes back to not just the capital flow uh, that I'll, we were talking about, not just the, the need for, to regionalize uh, energy uh, within different parts of the world. But from an investment standpoint, it's also a because it's such a new area and and rather difficult uh, for investors to be able to make uh, single stock selections successfully. We think it's a great cornerstone part of investors' uh, portfolios that gives them broad range exposure. Uh, what we're seeking to do, as I said, is be that benchmark index. But if you look at our performance uh, uh, since inception, you can see that against our peers within the new energy ETF. Uh, sector, we've outperformed uh, all of our peers in terms of total returns. But I think more importantly is, of course, this year has been a year of very high volatility. Uh, And this is going to continue to happen, uh, we think, within these segments uh, in the years to come as we go through this transition. But when you look at the the year-to-date performance of, of our ETF versus our peers, you'll also see that we have the lowest maximum draw. Uh, across the peer group. And so what that indicates is that we're both able to to optimize around volatility, but also you're not necessarily giving up the upside uh, potential associated with having uh, high-quality stock selection that you might look for. Now, this isn't to say that this should be 100% of people's portfolio, of course not, Uh, particularly for investors that have a specific drive or desire or conviction around one of these segments, for example, you know, we encourage people to diversify and, and add a bolt-on uh, to this, but we think that this is a really good cornerstone piece of, uh, of most investors' portfolios. Tim, just a couple minutes uh, left here. Before I let you go, I'm going to ask you a question that has a an hour-long, at least, answer that I'm going to give you just like two <laughs> minutes to, to, uh, to touch on. But I have to ask you about this because I'm seeing – so much more of this in the media. And, and look, you are an expert in this uh, this new energy economy space. Do you have any thoughts on nuclear I- energy? You, you know, for whatever yeah. reason or reasons, and, and maybe you can tell us, nuclear seems like such a highly polarizing topic. There's a lot of debate here. But I've read plenty arguing that nuclear is a, uh, a good long-term solution here, or at least a bridge. Maybe it could help take us from the old energy economy to the new. What, what are your quick thoughts on nuclear? Yeah, absolutely. We, we actually think that nuclear has a really important part uh, to play in this transition from the old traditional carbon-based fuels to, to this new energy economy. Uh, you know, of course, it, it's highly polarizing because it's, it's been highly politicized uh, over the years. Uh, we do think that there is areas where it's interesting for, for an investor standpoint. We think that there's uh, certain areas which will gain more traction uh, in the in the years to come. Uh, so th- things like you know small nuclear reactors, uh, which groups like the Gates Foundation have been funding for for a number of years, uh, do have an opportunity to to play an important role. 
but of course, you know, it all comes with uh, a certain amount of political pressure uh, around the world. But we see it as, as a very good uh, opportunity for, for low-carbon uh, fuel generation. No, One of the I... things we just have to solve. And, uh, and sorry, you go, Nate. No, I, I completely agree. I mean, it just seems like the, the whole energy discussion is always so politicized. I find it really frustrating uh, because anytime you, you have something politicized like that, then I think we, we lose reasonable discourse. And some people just tune out the, the topic altogether. And I think that that can happen in this space. So, no, I, I completely agree. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's where we really see an opportunity, you know, coming back to, to our core skills as, as a group around this ETF. Uh, is to identify those leaders and innovators. Uh, and we are a, a broad market index in terms of we do invest uh, in uh, in most jurisdictions around the world. So it's truly a global view. So we have that opportunity to, to select that we think it's important, uh, but we'll also focus on the ones that we think uh, are going to be successful uh, in the years to come. Well, Tim, appreciated uh, hearing your views this week. Best of luck to you and the Blue Horizon team on the uh, B&E ETF moving forward. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, sir. Appreciate your time. That was Tim Johnston, partner at Blue Horizon Capital. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, iShares. If you would like to learn more about iShares Sustainable ETFs, you can visit iShares.com sustainable. Next week, uh, honestly, I'm not quite sure what I'm doing yet. Stay tuned. I may be back here in studio or I may do a, a best of ETF Prime. We'll see how I'm feeling. I'm going to take a little summer vacation next week. But until then, have a great week, everyone. <laughs>